Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Perryman of London, who will discuss his recent book, In the Form of a God, which is part of the Studies in Early Christology series by Wipfenstock. The focus of our conversation is looking at the subject of pre-existence in Paul's epistles. The question before us is whether Paul taught or assumed that Christ had a literal pre-human career prior to his birth. In this interview, we'll cover five of the six major texts, including Galatians 4.4, 4, 1 Corinthians 8.6, 1 Corinthians 10.4, 2 Corinthians 8.9, and Colossians 1.15 and 16. And then next week, we'll tackle Philippians 2. Here now is episode 519, No Preexistence in Paul, with Andrew Perryman. Today on Restitutio, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Perryman, an associate research fellow at the London School of Theology. He's the author of several books, including In the Form of a God, which will be our primary focus for today. Welcome to Restitutio, Dr. Perryman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought we'd begin by asking the why question. Why this book? What were you (laughs) hoping to accomplish? (laughs) Uh, The what question is always so much easier. It was, you know, you just pick up a thread somewhere. Something sort of dawns on you. You you think you've seen something interesting. You pursue it and you sort of pull on that thread and see what comes, you know, how how far it goes. I mean, it may just break off and doesn't go anywhere. Or you actually may find you're close to sort of pulling the whole piece of fabric apart, the tapestry, if you're not careful. And then you can you can get into quite serious trouble. And it would have started with this reading Roy Hoover's article on that expression in Philippians 2, 6 about not counting equality with God or something like that, a thing to be grasped. So there will, I'm sure we'll get onto that at some point. It didn't look like a loose thread at the time. In fact, it, you know, reading the scholarship, it looked like a sort of well-integrated, well-woven into the tapestry. But having read that article, it left a, a great big question at the end. And I, I think he's got it wrong, or at least he got most of it right, but the wrong conclusion was drawn from it. So you start pulling on that and you think, well, where, what else comes out with it? What other threads related to this are loose and worth exploring a bit? Rather than being some sort of faith thing, this whole question of how we we understand Jesus in relation to God has is always there in the background uh, we so i mean yes pulling on that thread there was there was probably a broader interest in doing so the particular line of inquiry began in a rather sort of accidental way just out of curiosity yeah yeah we'll get on to that hoover article i think it's from 1971 yeah, yeah, it goes back a bit, yeah. And uh, N.T. Wright popularized it in the 80s, made it sort of the definitive take, and you had the uh, the gall to question it. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> we'll come back to that. So let's let's dive into Paul and pre-existence. Your book is focusing on Paul and uh, yeah. the subject of pre-existence. And you talk about Galatians 4.4 early on. Uh, it's the yeah. verse that says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
And some people, I guess, allege that this word sent forth, ex apostello, it implies that the Son lived in heaven and God sent him to earth. Yeah. Why don't you read Galatians 4 4 this way? Well, I mean, part of it is that translation, I wonder how much people have just simply been misled by the, the translation sent forth, which is a sort of rather archaic. We don't we don't normally talk about people being sent forth in our, in daily life. I sent my son forth to go to buy something from the shop. We don't say that. We just he gets sent off to go. Well, sent off, sent him off. Uh, sent forth has this sort of theological ring to it. At some point, the X part of the ex apostello, which is sort of a sending out. And so I would translate sent out rather than sent forth, just if we need to sort of retain that, uh, that emphasis, uh, somehow that that sort of connected this passage in particular with this idea of God sending forth in, in this sort of strong theological sense, so ascending from heaven to earth, somewhat to the, the you know, the disregard of the actual context in Galatians. Mm-hmm. So how do you see it then? The verb is is used widely in in the Greek Old Testament. It, it's used for well all sorts of people who are sent out from. It just sort of carries this idea: you're going out from a center to somewhere else. You're you're going out with a mission. Moses is sent out. Prophets are sent out. Once you start looking at those and reading those and recognizing the the sort of the contextual relevance of this idea that people are sent to it, many people are sent to Israel for a purpose, and there's perhaps some idea of being sent out from a place to a distant part or something, whether there's a, there's a journey part to it, perhaps, but that that's relatively unimportant. As soon as you sort of put it in that context, well, there's no reason at all why uh, we shouldn't read this passage in the same way. But we've already, uh, plenty has said about Moses already that Jesus is here some sort of counterpart or he's fulfilling something that Moses began or or arguably sort of ending something that Moses began. So there's a natural sort of parallel there. But more interestingly, perhaps, and though you can't, I don't think you can really pin this down as as, something that was in Paul's mind. But the, the parable of the parable that Jesus tells of the prophets, the servants being sent to the the vineyard uh, of Israel, and then the son being sent. That language is there. It's in Jeremiah, from the day that their fathers came out of the land of Egypt, even until this day, I have also sent out all my slaves, the prophets. So that's the same verb, sent out to you day by day and early in the morning, I also sent. And it's a readily available idea. For Paul, talking about Jesus' mission to the Jews, it's very clear this is not ascending into the world. This is ascending to those who are under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. We've heard already that he is an offspring of Abraham. This this is not someone who's come from heaven. This is someone who's come from Abraham. And he has been sent to Israel to carry out a task, to redeem God's people, uh, those who are under the law, and so on. That's all we need. The, the passage doesn't demand, at least as far as I can see. The only other argument that uh, was sometimes made, or the other main argument that's sometimes made, is that we, we read later that the Spirit is also sent out. So you've got ascending out of the Son and then ascending out of the Spirit. So you argue, people would argue that, well, if obviously the Spirit has been sent from heaven, 
therefore the son was sent from heaven. Yet clearly the spirit comes from heaven. My argument in the book is actually because the sending of the son comes first, and we've got this very strong idea that that others are sent afterwards, the 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 apostles and, and others. Well, that's Carry even on. what the word apostle means, right? Yeah, it's someone who's sent. So they're carrying on the mission of the Son with the Spirit of the Son. Paul talks about the Spirit being sent out because that replicates the mission and the, the journey that the Son makes and is now being made by the apostles. So I think that to me is enough. I don't see any reason to look beyond the immediate historical frame of Jesus' mission to Israel and the continuation of that mission in the activity of the apostles. Yeah, the prophets are sent. Uh, John the Baptist was, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, right? Uh, So none of those cases do we see this as somebody sent from heaven to earth, uh, just sent by God to the people. That makes sense as like a standard reading. Well, let's move on to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Would that be all right? Yeah, sure. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, I'm just reading from the ESV. Yeah, which is the, the version I use. But, which yeah. is, uh, you know, it's, it's a good literal translation. Uh, there's some, I would have some quibbles here and there, but it's good enough. So the early high Christology people, with whom I'm sure you're familiar, have argued that Paul is, what, splitting the Shema or somehow adapting the Shema here of Deuteronomy 6.4 to identify Christ as the Lord, uh, as Yahweh, in some sense. So uh, do you see that here? Or what do you see here in 1 Corinthians 8.6? There's some arithmetic going on. We have one God uh, who is one Father and one Lord. Now, how? What is the relationship between the one Father, the one Lord, and the one God? The 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 argument, the early high Christology argument, is is that what Paul has done that he's included the Lord Jesus as Lord in the Godhead by in bringing him into the Shema. Either we're adding one and one together and making one, or we are dividing one and making one plus one. Obviously, the the arithmetic is skewy, but you can do that sort of calculation, that run that equation, if you like, I, I, in either direction. And my argument is we've already had back in verse four, effectively, a statement of the Shema concerning the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Uh, for although there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. So now, now we get to this Lord's part. So the, the way his argument going, he's, he begins with the Shema, then recognizes that at least in pagan eyes, there are many gods and there are many lords. So now we we, we have to deal with the situation where we, we are talking about gods and lords. And then as you, you've read the bit, he, he, he affirms that for us as believers in Jesus, we have one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things uh, and we through him. So it's it, it, part of this is a question, well, how is this argument going? And it looks there, it looks to me like once you sort of work that through, you are going from an affirmation of one God who is the father to somehow having to deal with the fact that, that there is also now one Lord who is a, a counterpart to, who corresponds to the many Lords who are out there in the world. And, and people have different views as to the relationship between the, the gods and the Lords 
Yeah, yeah, that's really the big question, right? Because verse five kind of controls verse six. Uh, yes. I mean, the distinction is there. What Paul understood by it is 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 hard to say. Are these some would say the gods in heaven and the lords of the gods on earth, or you have the pagan gods and you have people like Caesar who self-appointed gods, so that the the idea of a, a divine man type figure. So there are various ways of dealing with that. One of the things you see in the later biblical texts, a distinction emerges between God as creator, the God who created all things, and the God who deals with the nations. So you've got a, a creation part and you've got a kingdom part, if you call it that, or a, a political part that goes on. Now, in the Old Testament, that, those they're not really separated out and, and accepted with this, you know, in the idea that Israel has a king who potentially is ruler of the nation. That's actually quite significant. One of the passages that I draw attention to is, is a passage of Philo where he talks about the, the two cherubim on the end of the Ark of the Covenant. And one of those represents God as creator. The other one represents God as the as ruler of the nations, the one governing over the nation. So in that political sphere, so you've got this large creation sphere and this smaller political sphere. And I think you begin to see it in the sort of the more prophetic apocalyptic literature where Israel is coming into conflict with the nations in, in that scenario where there is a tension, where there's a conflict, where there's a crisis at the political level, these two functions become somewhat separated. And I think what, what happens with Paul, and, and really with the whole of the New Testament, and it's somewhat anticipated in, in the Old Testament, is the, is the simple idea that the judgment with respect to the nations, judgment and rule with respect to the nations, is delegated to uh, Israel's king or to a Messiah figure, or a son of man figure, or, you know, whatever you're reading at the time, there are different approaches to this. So the uniqueness of God as creator of heaven and earth, which which is all the way through scripture, all the way through the New Testament, all the way through the, the Jewish literature of the, the sec, late Second Temple period, that's safeguarded. That That's sort of the fundamental of Jewish monotheism, that God created all things. But in dealing with the crisis that Israel faces. So uh, to go back to the Galatians passage, the son is sent out in the fullness of time. Now, traditionally, we would understand that as sort of some point in the middle of history where, where, you know, somewhat arbitrary. Uh, It happened 2000 years ago, quite why that was the fullness of time, we're not told. I would argue that uh, this reference, this idea of the fullness of time has to do with the particular crisis that the Jews were facing in in Palestine under Roman rule. So you find similar expressions in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's how is God responding to this immediate political crisis of, of Israel under Roman occupation, threatened with destruction, uh, which I think Jesus foresees quite clearly, Well, how does he deal with that? Paul's argument is he deals with it by raising his son from the dead, seating with his right hand uh, in in accordance with Psalm 110, uh, which which is a very political statement of God giving authority of his to his son as Israel's king to rule in the midst of the nations. Yes, I mean, in principle, you go all the way back to the Shema, you could say that, that God is both father and Lord in, in a sense at that point, though that it's not put in those terms. 
but by the time we get to an apocalyptic crisis in the in the New Testament period, uh, an existential crisis for Israel, the extraordinary message that the apostles bring first to the Jews and then to the nations is that God is resolving, has begun to resolve this crisis through the agency of a crucified Messiah. And that then becomes the, the point at which we grapple with the through whom uh, all things. Right. We That's the next him. question, right? Because you, you just yeah. mentioned that they're safeguarding uh, the Jewish literature, safeguards creation for the father alone. So uh, a lot yes. of people will say, well, this uh, through whom are all things refers to Christ's role in creation. Uh, so, yeah, yeah please, uh, please comment on that. It is creation language. So, yes, there's a wisdom story told in, in the scriptures. So, well, so, I mean, from Proverbs, it's uh, perhaps it, you may, you know, whether it's there right in, in the in Genesis chapter one, I'm, I'm not sure. But certainly by the time you get to Proverbs eight, you've got some sense of wisdom there in sort of very metaphorical terms. So there's a personification of wisdom being involved in the creation of all things. We don't necessarily have to assume that here. And when we've got a similar language in Romans 11, 36, where it's very clearly not talking about creation, it's talking about a much more limited set of all things. Uh, so I, what seems to be going on here, certainly this is the argument and, and the details are in the book. Well, the, the way I understand this is what Paul is saying. And, and Jimmy Dunn made very similar arguments. I mean, he would be the, the other, the, you know, the obvious person to go to here is, is that the Paul has, has picked up on the idea that God creates through wisdom. Uh, in wisdom, but he's doing a new creative thing here. So this this is an expression of the creative activity of God at this critical moment in Israel's history. So God is bringing about something new, and and it is it, it is as though this is wisdom doing the same thing again, doing something new again. Here, certainly in the Colossians passage, and and elsewhere in one Corinthians. That's the underlying idea. What I think encourages us to think that way is the motif of wisdom coming to find somewhere to dwell in the world. We have John 1, so the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In, in the Jewish writings, we have preceding that, the idea that wisdom comes looking for some place to dwell in, um, I think it's Ben Sirah and also in, in First Enoch possibly somewhere else, uh, I can't remember, with a couple of sort of very different outcomes. And I'll probably get this the wrong way around. But I know in Ben Sirah, I think wisdom comes looking for a place to dwell in Israel and finds a place in, in the form of Torah. So Torah is the embodiment of God's creative wisdom and becomes the basis for a whole society and a whole world in the land. In a more pessimistic take on this story in, in the apocalyptic text, one Enoch, I really hope I've got this the right way around. Uh, wisdom comes looking for somewhere to live and can't find anywhere because of, of the, the sinfulness. And not even in Israel does uh, wisdom find a place to live. So wisdom goes back to heaven. But at a later stage, wisdom sort of comes back again through the son of man figure. Both in John and in Paul is, is something in different ways using that idea that the original creative wisdom of God has at last found somewhere to get traction in the world. 
someone through whom the wisdom of God can find traction to bring about the sort of judgment and salvation, the sort of transformation that is necessary in order to save something from the crisis and not just save something from God's people, but to bring about something new in the wider world. So it's it's that idea that as one Lord, this one Lord Jesus Christ, he brings in this limited way, this creative power of God to bear on circumstances, on, on history. And we so we have it um, elsewhere earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, it, the, the idea that, that he is our wisdom and the one through whom the church has its existence. Very similar language. And I, so I think if you put it within the context of the letter as a whole, you can sort of make a very strong case for finding in the crucifixion of Jesus, his crucified Messiah, is the paradoxical wisdom through which God is making something new. That seems to me the heart of it. The, the wisdom of God has found very oddly this place to get a grip on history and bring about change through the faithfulness of Jesus that, that finds expression ultimately in the cross. And God responds to that by raising him from the dead and giving him all authority and power, etc., and we'll we'll come back to that as well once we get to Colossians. In 1 Corinthians, there's also a text where it talks about the rock that followed them was Christ. That's uh, 1 Corinthians yeah. 10, verse 4. It says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What do you make of this one? Is Paul saying that Christ accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness? Uh, well, not not in any literal sense, no. So the, the argument would be that this is not the sort of normal allegorical interpretation because it's in the past tense. The rock was the Christ. So if, if this was merely an allegory, uh, use Paul using the wilderness story as as an allegory for salvation in the, his present, we would have the rock is Christ and so on. So, for example, uh, you've got in Galatians 4, these women are two covenants. So Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. In the, So that's how you interpret or you add an interpretation to a story to make it an allegory. You know, the early high Christology thing, what they would argue is that it, we don't have it in the present tense. This is not an allegorical interpretation. Therefore, it must be he must have understood it in a more literal sense. The rock was the Christ. The, the problem with that argument is that the whole everything is in the past in that passage. So I mean, I don't have the passage in front of me, but the rock was the Christ in the same way that passing through the sea was baptism. The, these, I think, are Aorist tenses eating and drinking in the wilderness, these were participation in the Lord's Supper. I mean, the, the point is, Paul is not using this as an allegory. It's, it's you know, maybe you could call it a typology. And that whole story was the equivalent for what you are going through now in Christ, the, the believers, because there's, there's a, a sort of a moral point attached to this. You can go through all this gift of God in all sorts of ways and yet still sin and still fall away and still and still be destroyed as they were destroyed in the wilderness so he's doing something different there to simply making Jesus some sort of literal presence in the past he's not allegorizing that I agree with that what he's doing is is making the Old Testament story work as 
a foreshadowing would I, is that one way it's an example of exactly what they were going through in their present it's a realistic example of spiritual complacency in the wilderness that is a counterpart to the spiritual complacency of the Corinthians, as, as Paul says. So the rock for them was what Christ was, a source of, of water, a source of life. Uh, going through the sea was for them what baptism is for you. And eating and drinking in the wilderness was for them what participation in the Lord's Supper is for you. That's why you've got the past tenses there. Yeah, I mean, it's not a major argument for the pre-existence anyway, but it, it's certainly one. It comes up. Been, yeah, it certainly comes up. Yeah. So in Second Corinthians, since we're uh, in Corinthians mode, we have this text in Second uh, Corinthians mm. 8, 9, where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul must mean that Christ existed in heaven, since in his earthly life he was never rich. That's sort of uh, the the argument being made. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What, do, what do you make of that? Part of this is translation. A better translation would be, uh, rather than he was rich and became poor, which suggests a sort of a, a, an abrupt change. You go from one condition to a, a completely different condition. You can't be both... The assumption is there you can't be both rich and poor. If you're a rich man, you're not a poor man. If you're a poor man, you're not a rich man. But the the translate, I think, I mean, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but in, in English, it would read something like, he became poor being rich. So the participle there for being rich allows for the being rich to continue while you become poor. You have something similar, certainly in uh, Revelation 2, uh, in the, the letter to the church in Smyrna, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. So you've got the possibility there of a richness, of wealth, that uh, exists at the same time as affliction and poverty. The language is, is pretty much the same. So I think what Paul's talking about in the, the 2 Corinthians 8 passage, as an example for believers, so he the, the Christ models the suffering part, poverty being primarily a, a metaphor for, for suffering, rather than a, some sort of existential or ontological poverty uh, in just becoming human. It's it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a figure for suffering. And yet you have all this wealth in the spirit. You're sort of rich in the spirit. And this is a, a theme Paul deals with this a lot in, in the, the Corinthian correspondence, that you, you've got all this new experience of life in the spirit and the in manifestations of the power of god through the spirit and and yet you i mean you can do two different things with that you can be arrogant and assume that this is you know we have arrived spiritually we've reached the pinnacle of spiritual achievement or you can recognize that actually that it belongs to a calling to suffer and and so you make yourself poor while at the same time being rich in the spirit. And, and that's exactly what is written to in uh, Revelation 2 to the believers in Smyrna, that they can be rich, but they are being afflicted. They are having to suffer. They are having to endure maybe perhaps literal poverty because of persecution or uh, be, because they are being, uh, they become pariahs in their uh, circumstances, in their culture. Uh, something like that. So, I, you know, in simple terms, that that's the line I took there. It fits his purposes in the context much better as well as in modeling. I mean, we come to this with the Philippians passage. In, in what sense is 
leaving heaven and coming to earth in what sense does that model anything useful for a believer right right that's not an experience i've had no uh and you you still can't go out looking for it either so i mean obviously you can you can do something with it but i I think it makes much more sense in the context of his you know what he's writing to the corinthians as a whole to see this as wealth in the spirit but at the same time being willing to make yourself poor or become poor for the sake of God's purposes. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. There is so much in the, the Greek phrase that's not coming through in the English translation. You know, this participle with an adjective, a substantive adjective, paired with this aorist. And, we, you know, we don't, have a, we don't have a verb that means to make poor either. So, like, the verb means to become yeah. poor. It's not a verb in English, to povertize or something. <laughs> Right. So there, there's a lot going on there. And that enables uh, a simultaneity. And I think this is going to come up in our, our later conversation with uh, Philippians 2. Right. Let's get to the really interesting text. This will be our, our last one for this episode, which is Colossians. Uh, you do a lot with <laughs> oh, okay. Colossians. Uh, so if you don't mind pulling that up, Colossians. Yeah, I, this this is hard. I mean, I, regardless of the, this whole question of, of pre-existence, it, it's, I didn't find it easy to, to look at. But OK, let's have a look at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's have a look at I it. Think. And I'll just, uh, for the sake of the audience, I'll just read it out. Uh, just the first uh, three verses there, 15 through 17 of Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you call this text an encomium, right? Yes, well, I mean, the same for the Philippians passage. Right. Can you explain Uh, that terminology a little bit? In simple terms, an encomium is a song or a poem of praise about a person, whereas a hymn is um, some sort of work presupposes to be some sort of worship context that addressed to a divine figure. You know, obviously, which one you choose depends on how you read the passage. I did come across people who would argue, certainly for the Philippians one, that uh, formally, uh, in terms of, you know, the look of the passage, it looks like an encomium. But because we believe that this is talking about the pre-existence of Jesus as a divine figure, it must be a hymn. So there's a, you're seeing already there's some admission that there's a bit of a contradiction there between form and content. That seems to me the simplest way of differentiating there are, I mean, people call it other things, a prose poem. That doesn't get us very far. That's, a, that's simply descriptive. The question really, I mean, I suppose, is whether it in some sense has been composed as something in its own right, rather than simply in the flow of Paul's argument in the you know, Philippians or in Colossians, what sort of label we might want to put on it from a sort of rhetorical analysis point of view, isn't that significant? But it might give us some insight into uh, early first century Christian practice, in, uh, literary practice or liturgical practice or, or whatever. It might allow for, if you regard this as a pre-written hymn or encomium from that point of view, you, you, that would explain some of the, any disjunction. That if it looks like that passage doesn't fit quite as well as we, we think it ought to. Well, that's because he's taken it from some other context and inserted it here. So we may, perhaps we should only expect a fairly limited 
continuity in the argument. So I, I don't think it's that important. And if you can go back and ask, was, was this written as an encomium as such or used as an encomium in Christian liturgical practice at the time? We can't do that, but I don't know what they would say. So in verse 15, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I haven't got the, the psalm passage in front of me. The, Israel's king is the firstborn. I, I would probably translate the firstborn of every creature. And and the, the idea is, it's, what is the psalm? I've only, I, I, I made some notes and didn't write everything down that I need, and, it, and it's not at the top of my head, but uh, that can be uh, found fairly easily. The idea that Israel's king was the oh Psalm 89 27 says I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth thank you well done yes that's the passage I was looking for part of the issue here and this is one of those questions about continuity and context is what has just gone before is an argument about kingdom so to make giving thanks to the father who qualified you for a share in the inheritance of the saints of light so they they have they're entitled to a share in some future situation who delivered us out of the dominion of darkness. That's a political term, obviously, and removed to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, and the forgiveness of sins. So this son who is being described in these terms as one who has the kingdom or will have the kingdom, which believers will inherit at some point in the future. That arguably sort of sets the tone already for how we read this and there's a tendency to sort of take it out of context as a little christological piece then you've lost that frame of reference so then you get firstborn of every creature or even for that matter in, uh, image of the invisible god well that seems to point us back to the invisible god who created all things and so on so we supply a, a much bigger frame for it than is than paul does I, I mean if this is a pre-written encomium well perhaps that's justified yeah, but it would be moot anyhow because the question is more what is Paul doing with it than what was it doing originally, exactly. right? At least that you need to ask that question. Yeah. So you're saying the context is about Christ's current situation in heaven at God's right hand in this exalted, what, uh, political and religious role. Of course, the ancients didn't really care to separate those two very much. And that when it says the firstborn... It's not talking about firstborn in time necessarily. It's talking about no, firstborn that, that's, in that's rank. The point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you can you can show that. That's clear enough from the use of that language in the Old Testament. It's, it's the point of I mean, Israel is is God's firstborn. It doesn't mean Israel was the first nation on earth. It means Israel was the one who the, the people that has been elevated to a status in God's eyes because this is a chosen people. And that perhaps carries with it the same way that the king or David is God's firstborn among all kings. It's He's elevated to that status, potentially with the idea in view that at some point in the future, vaguely conceived, Israel will be the leading nation, at least in you know within the world as they saw it. So if, if at the time the Babylonians are the dominant empire and the, the power to which all the peoples turn or bring tribute or and, and so on, at some point in the future, that will be turned around and, and Jerusalem will be the center of the world. And the nations will bring tribute to Jerusalem and they will enrich the temple. They will bring their tribute to the temple and they will come looking for wisdom from 
the law. That wisdom that found its expression in the law will become available to the nation. That idea is important here, I think, going off on a little bit of a tangent. The question that, that stands out here is if this is talking about the original creation, why is there, there no reference to beasts of the field or the birds of the air or the mountains or the trees or the rivers? The things that, that get created when creation happens. What we have created in him, all things in the heavens and on earth are visible and invisible. So, yes, there's some sense in which this encompasses the whole of the, the cosmos, the created order. But it's thrones and dominions and sovereignties and authorities. And we don't have to define each of those terms precisely, but clearly they belong to a political discourse rather than to the very familiar idea from Genesis and the Psalms that God creates the stuff of the world and the things living in it. Well, we, we have none of that here. So at least we have to ask, well, what does it mean that this the one who has become king is elevated to a position of, of firstborn of every creature? In him were created all things, all these political realities, thrones, dominions, sovereignties, authorities. My argument is that well, all things through him and for him have been created and he is before all things and all things in him have consisted held together. Again, we got that wisdom language, I think. So there, there is a creative event going on here, but I don't, I don't think this is an old creation, the original creation. This is a new creation. More to the point, though, it's a new political reality that I think is in view. And if you think about it, we've got a situation when Paul is writing this, uh, or maybe someone else wrote it, we have God enthroned, or Jesus enthroned in heaven. So you've got a rule in heaven, but on earth, Caesar is in charge, or you know Caesar and his representatives across the Roman Empire. So you, you have not got, uh, you've got a divided rule. God is in one of the thrones in heaven. Jesus is, is seated with him, however. But on earth, we have these pagan rulers. So there's a, a disjunction there. They're not united. They, they're not of one mind. They're not serving the same end and so on. So I think what's anticipated in this encomium or whatever we want to call it, psalm type thing, is the reunification of rule on earth and rule in heaven. So the authority of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father will be acknowledged on earth. So, I mean, here, this is eschatology rather than, than Christology, in a sense. But this is one of my, my basic arguments, that we've tried to do our Christology apart from the story that is unfolding here and has a quite clearly conceived outcome, which is that the rule in heaven and rule on earth will be reconciled with each other. And that, that's part of what's going on in the second part of this passage. And uh, Ephesians as well. I mean, you, you sort of bring the two together. I think you get quite a strong expectation that this one who is firstborn of every creature will finally be confessed as Lord by the nations of the world as Paul saw it. Yeah, I, I, some great thoughts there. I wonder what you think of what you make of the preposition in here at the at the head in verse 15. Uh, a lot of translations mm. prefer by taking an instrumental position. Was it Beale who said "in" is within the sphere of or something like that? Is that how you would yeah. take it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I'm not sure there's any very clear way of resolving those sort of questions. I would translate because in him were created, whether that really captures the thought. One of the, the, the issues here 
I would argue. I mean, if you think Paul's, he's not reflecting on Jesus as, as a theologian in another world. Whether or not he ever met Jesus, you know, as a person, we don't know. He was there pretty much in Jerusalem soon afterwards when the um, death of Stephen. He's experienced Jesus in either directly or indirectly as, as someone who was crucified, but under Rome. Uh, he encounters the risen Christ uh, as a, I think, as a person. The, the whole thing about praying in the name of Jesus. I mean, that that that's another Christological. You know, do we pray to Jesus in the name of Jesus, and all those sort of questions? Paul, quite almost in a very literal sense, called out to Jesus as a person in heaven who would act or you know intercede on his behalf. There was a very personal part to Paul's relationship with Jesus as someone who had experienced what Paul himself was going through. So, a major theme in Paul, I'm sort of groping my way towards what I want to say here. A major theme in Paul is that Paul is conscious of going through what Jesus went through before him, the suffering and the potentially dying in the hope of being raised again. And that's, you know, Philippians 3, that I, I may know him and the, the power of his sufferings and, and you know, potentially being conformed to his death and experiencing the same resurrection. Uh, I've mangled the passage, but I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the point is clear. And, and he holds out the same thing to others as well. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You're rich in the spirit, but you have to let go of, well, not quite let go of it, but you use that in the midst of suffering. You experience that in the midst of suffering and, and really the gifts of the spirit, the spirit of Jesus given into your, given to input in your hearts is the spirit of the one who in Gethsemane cries out, Abba, Father. Oh, you have that both in, in Romans and in, in Galatians. This is not the spirit of personal fulfillment. This is the spirit of one who suffered and was obedient to, unto death on a cross and so on. So that by him were created all things. I think it's much more likely that, that Paul is still thinking of Jesus as an individual person who's been raised from the dead, taken up to be with the father, waiting for some event in the future, a parousia event when he will, I don't know if Paul literally expected him to descend from heaven on the clouds, but certainly he was looking to, for an event when the person who was executed under Rome would be confessed as Lord by the nations, and so on. It's not an argument you, you can make, absolutely, but it, it, as a way of thinking about Paul and his relationship with the risen Lord, I would assume that throughout his life, he, that he thought of Jesus in, in, in ways that he, some, someone he could relate to very personally. And I, it just seems a bit unlikely then that he would rethink of this Jesus as a sphere in which things were created. That's too abstract. It's too remote from the sort of experiences that, you know, the memories that Paul have had and the experiences of his suffering for Jesus, for me to, to sort of be credible. Okay. Okay. So there are some other interesting parallels. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, the old has passed away, the new has come. Or uh, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus yeah. for good yeah. works, right? Or, uh, you know, you have this new creation language other places too, right? Ephesians, yeah. uh, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. Colossians 3, put off the old self, put on the new self, which is renewed. In the image of its creator, you know, we, we have this uh, way of talking about the Christian, what, experience or salvation or redemption in a way that 
uses creation terminology. And it doesn't seem yeah. like very many scholars are picking up on this new creation language with respect to Colossians 1. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's an interesting point because, yes, what are the reasons for not connecting the two? And, I mean, your other point about Ephesians 1 is is very strong, too, because the the verbal parallels between the end of Ephesians 1 and what we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 or so, like where it talks about the uh, the rulers and the authorities and all this, it's almost exactly the same language. And in Ephesians yeah. 1, it's clearly talking about ascension. It's clearly talking yeah. about yeah, yeah, ascension yeah. theology. So if Colossians 1 is now talking about Genesis creation, it's just like, what? No, I, I, I think that's right. We like the idea these days of being new creation rather than being souls who have been saved to go to heaven. So we like that much more holistic, embodied idea of creation. We haven't quite connected that with, I mean, that that's become a, a sort of an evangelical, you know, fairly sort of safe evangelical position. Uh, we haven't sort of connected that with this other sort of strong evangelical position of Jesus as the, the pre-existent one who was there in creation. So, you know, maybe that will come about. I mean, it's an interesting observation. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. Well, we better draw this episode to an end here. Uh, where can people learn more about you? I have a blog. That's probably the, the place to go, which is www.postost. So P-O-S-T-O-S-T dot net. What is that? Postost. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, it's a very good question. And I wish I hadn't come up with it, frankly. I started blogging, you know, 2002, I think it was, very early on. I had a thing called Open Source Theology, which was good. I mean, that went on for a while and quite a lot of people engaged with it. But I, it got to the point where I, I felt I was dominating. And I, it was all, it, it was it was meant, it wasn't open source any, anymore. It was, I just wanted somewhere to to do my own thing. So the it's post the open source theology. Oh, okay. Get it? It's, okay, it makes it's, sense it, now. It's, well, yeah, it, it, but it's ridiculous. I I could have come up with something a little little less opaque. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's anyway. fine. Well, thanks for talking with me today. No, it's fun. Thank you. Well, that brings this episode to an end. What'd you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode five nineteen. No pre-existence in Paul with Andrew Perryman, and leave your comments there. We'd love to read your thoughts. Also, if you haven't yet, go ahead and pick up his book. I highly recommend it. In fact, we use it as a giveaway at last week's Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, giving away a copy of Andrew Perryman's book. It's a little pricey, but it's well worth the cost. Perryman doesn't just give you a basic biblical theology. He's working very much with the Greco-Roman sources of the time, looking at both Second Temple Judaism and the surrounding pagan culture of the churches to which Paul wrote his letters. Well, we got some feedback in from last week's episode with Rick Naviello called Tried to Believe in the Trinity. Suzanne wrote in, great interview with Rick. I've done similarly after being a Jehovah's Witness decades ago, tried hard to prove to myself that the Bible teaches the Trinity. I went into seminary grad school two years ago to give it my all. Now, as I'm graduating and wondering if the seminary will refuse to grant me my degree, God has answered my decades-long prayers by leading me to this podcast and many other resources to help me see from the Bible, what Unitarianism is, and the truth of the heritage of the Old and New Testaments. 
I'm so grateful to all involved in the Reformation movement to restore authentic Christianity. Suzanne went on to ask about a presentation that Dr. Jerry Weirwell put out on especially like Romans 10, text where Yahweh is applied to Jesus uh, in the New Testament. And so if you're curious about that, I posted this on the website, but I'll just mention it here. At the Unitarian Christian Alliance YouTube channel, you can find their playlist for the 2022 presentations, and Jerry's is entitled, Applying Old Testament Yahweh Passages to Jesus. And he goes through and explains how he sees that practice, not as identifying Jesus as Yahweh, but as Jesus bearing the name of Yahweh in his eschatological role as a Messiah. A fairly common understanding in scholarship, but sadly not well understood by many today. Also on the Restitutio YouTube channel, we got a number of comments in on last week's episode. When I can, I'm releasing the interviews that I do here on this audio podcast on YouTube as well, but they're unedited, so they're... they're <laughs> I encourage you to, to check the YouTube version against the audio version. I think you'll be very happy with how spoiled you are listening to the audio version. I tighten everything up and get rid of all the sort of false starts and rabbit trails and whatnot. But anyhow, uh, a lot of people do still prefer YouTube, the sort of unwashed masses, I suppose. Uh, since you're one of my dear comrades in audio, I can I can be a snob with you about this. Anyhow, on the YouTube comments, uh, somebody commented in, the Trinity is a pagan belief and not Christian. I often hear people use John 1, 1 through 18 to try to prove it, but then you remind them that there's two mentioned in John 1 and not three. So I just wanted to mention a couple things on this. I don't think the Trinity, strictly speaking, is a pagan belief. People say that from time to time. But I'd like to see evidence. I mean, I know there are like three-headed gods among the Hindus, and you know maybe you can find Cerberus, the three-headed dog, or something like that. But is that really the Trinity? Did that really play a role in the development of the Trinity? I don't think so. Philosophy is much more relevant but even when it comes to philosophy, the Trinity is still a mishmash because the incarnation of Jesus, that concept is very non-philosophical. To go from spirit to flesh is not a move any of the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, would have endorsed. So I think it's something that grew and naturally evolved in the matrix of both Second Temple Jewish and, more importantly, especially as we get into the second and third centuries, the Greco-Roman context of especially Middle Platonism as carried into the church through Philo and his reworking of Torah in light of Middle Platonism, but also, even more importantly, through the work of Clement of Alexandria and then culminating in the master theologian Origen of Alexandria, who studied under the founder of Neoplatonism, Ammonius Saccus in Alexandria, and who really does develop some of the some of the hardware necessary to believe in the Trinity straight up from his Neoplatonic background, but then combine it with Christian themes that were unpalatable to Greek philosophy. But pagan, you know, I don't think it's really pagan in the sense that you could find Greek gods that were worshipped as three in one or something like that. So I just wanted to give that little pushback. Another commenter wrote in saying, really enjoyed hearing Rick's journey. I love how he came full circle, answering his 10-year-old self's question decades later with so simple an answer to such a profound question. Reminds me of Jesus embracing little children and asking us to just believe like they do. 
Yeah, sometimes children can get at the truth of the matter before we adults do. Uh, that's kind of funny when that happens. And for those of you who haven't heard the episode yet, go back and listen to the last episode, 518, Tried to Believe in the Trinity. And uh, you'll hear Rick's journey going through the pretty much standard American megachurch process of discipleship and small groups and meeting with pastors and reading the typical kinds of books by Trinitarians trying to teach the Trinity in simple terms and so forth. And you can hear about his whole story there. But what's so interesting about Rick is that he is non-resistant to this idea. In fact, if anything, he's in favor of it. And so am I, by the way, just for the record. I would love for the Trinity to be a good explanation for who God is, but it fails. Where does it fail? It fails logically. Where else does it fail? It fails biblically. Where else does it fail? It fails historically. It's an anachronistic idea that developed over time. doesn't mean it's wrong because it developed, but when we have logical problems, when we have biblical problems, and when we don't have historical evidence of it existing prior to centuries after Christ, we really do well to question it. And uh, But anyhow, I would love for it to be true. I would love to believe in it personally because, even though it's confusing, I would have so many more career opportunities as a pastor. <laughs> I'd have so many more friends. I could publish in so many more journals and evangelical publishers. I, I think my life would just overall be easier if I could believe in the Trinity. But uh, try as I might, I, I, I can't seem to find a way to make it work either. And I'm quite convinced that it's just something that if you had told it to Jesus, like the whole theory, the model of the Trinity, he would look at you and just be like, what are you talking about? Or to any of the apostles, they'd be like, look, person as distinct from being, what is that? How can you be eternal and generated? How can you be begotten and never have a beginning? You know, these are just some basic, basic problems with the Trinity that is not, that they do not have ready solutions. If you're curious to delve deeper into the topic of the Trinity, I would strongly recommend Dale Tuggy's work, his Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the Trinity is very helpful. And also his book called What is the Trinity, which you can get on Amazon. And he goes through very systematically an analytic philosophical approach to evaluating the Trinity and ultimately saying, look, I think we're better off without it. Another commenter on the YouTube video says, God is not the author of confusion. The Trinity is a combination of Greek philosophy and church doctrine. The church had already started to turn from Paul's doctrine by 2 Timothy. The turning continued and became more and more political. Unfortunately, the God of this world runs most of that scene. Yeah, so good points here, Peter. You're kind of reiterating what I just mentioned about Greek philosophy and church doctrine combining together. I would also echo your point about politics. There were incredible forces at work, both sides, or all three sides perhaps, politicking the emperor to get the emperor on your side so that you could win the day and establish your sect of Christianity as the authorized, legitimate sect, and then to be able to persecute or exclude your theological enemies. Tragic behavior, by the way. I don't think this was a helpful approach <laughs> to discovering truth. 
Some interesting thoughts there, friends. Thanks for you who are contributing. There are a number of other comments, too, which you can go check out at the Rest Studio YouTube channel if you're interested. That'll be it for this week. Next week, we have part two with Professor Andrew Perryman once again on preexistence in Paul and looking at specifically Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. So stay tuned for that. If you'd like to contribute to this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. I'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.